Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I recorded some of my audio in this episode from my hotel room in Amsterdam, where I am currently on a book tour for How Minds Change. Not currently on a book tour in the hotel. I'm going places across the Netherlands and in the UK. I just did a lecture last night in Nijmegen and the night before in Utrecht and the night before that at the School of Life here in Amsterdam. And tomorrow night, I'll be the opening act for the Night of Philosophy in Rotterdam. If you follow me on social media, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, that sort of thing, I'll be posting updates from all of these things, including some clips and some other fun stuff, links to things. Just watch out for all of that. Okay, let's start the show. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 256. If we don't reclaim the idea of persuasion, if we don't ditch this kind of pessimistic pose that people can never change, will never change. We're consigning this country to a future of of tyranny and hatred and mass delusion. And that's a future I don't I don't accept. That is the voice of a non-geared artist, the author of The Persuaders, and this is the third episode in a three-part series about how to have difficult conversations with people who see the world differently, how to have better debates about contentious issues, and how to ethically and scientifically persuade one another about the things that matter. In short, this is a three-part series about how minds change, which just happens to be the title of my new book, which is also about all those topics. While promoting How Minds Change, which came out a few months ago, a lot of people reached out to me to let me know that several other books had come out around the same time as mine with similar questions, similar themes, similar concerns. And so it seemed to me there was a movement afoot, a new wave of nonfiction about how to have better conversations and reduce all this argumentative madness and epistemic chaos. So instead of framing all these authors and all these books as being in competition with one another, I wanted to boost everyone's signal to collaborate instead of compete, since that's really what we're all proselytizing with these books. So I got in touch with the three authors, with the three most prominent books on this topic, asked them if they'd like to take part in this, and they all said yes, for sure. And so the previous two episodes and this one all feature those authors talking about their projects. In the first episode, we sat down with Monica Guzman, the author of I Never Thought of It That Way. 
In the second episode, we talked with Bo So, the author of Good Arguments. And in this episode, we sit down with Anand Giardardis, the author of The Persuaders, which has a very interesting thesis. It's mostly aimed at progressives and people on the political left, many of whom Anand feels have bought into a dangerous form of pessimism. The idea that you just can't change the minds of people on the other side of a political debate, or it's too difficult, or it's too painful, so you just should focus on your own side instead. He considers his book an intervention for people on the left who have bought into what he considers a lie, a crafted lie, one that was spread by bad actors with ill intentions. And those intentions were to convince people on both the left and the right to give up on reaching out to people on the other side. The goal being to destabilize democracy by polluting the discourse, by poisoning the pool of ideas, by ending our deliberation, collaboration, discussion, and debate. In this conversation, you're going to hear us talk about all of these things, and we discuss meaning-making, the dark arts of rhetoric, the ethical issues associated with reaching out to people who may hate you or hate someone you love. There's a whole lot of stuff. We talk about a whole lot of things. Anand is an incredible journalist who has many ideas about what we ought to be doing. So let's just get right into it. Here is our discussion with Anand Girdardis, the author of The Persuaders. Anand Gardadas. I'm a, a journalist and an author uh, of, of four books, and The Persuaders is uh, is the newest. It's the fourth in in the series, um, and I, I I write about people and and change. I would say people trying to make change, people trying to withstand change, people trying to change each other, um, people in change. That's great. How did this become an obsession for you? Um, I, you know, I think. I am uh, someone who has a deep conviction in and passion for the idea of democracy and democracy, not in the narrow sense that we often talk about it, you know, voting or some other kind of civic behavior that we may do occasionally, but democracy as a culture and democracy as a way of life and democracy as, you know, a set of ideas about uh, all of us being equal, uh, a set of beliefs around, you know, 24-7, 365 conversation among everyone as the way we choose the future. Um, and so a lot of my books have been about, uh, you know, sort of, I was very educated by the work of, of Tocqueville in America. And a lot of my work uh, is about the kind of broader culture of democracy he wrote about in, in various contexts. My first book was about India. Uh, I was a foreign correspondent in India for the New York Times. And what I, I mean, there was a lot of things happening in India in the moment that I was there in the 2000s. But the thing that I felt was most significant that was happening there was a collision between an ancient, quite, uh, in some ways, quite intact ancient culture, incredibly stratified hierarchical culture, 
that was built on the idea that everybody has a, a role, a duty, a prescribed role, a role that you don't make up in your head, but that you get from the world, from your family, from others, a position. And that idea was colliding with a new idea that was coming to India, which is what Tocqueville called the leveling principle, the, the idea, the heart of democracy, which is people uh, are, no one is better than anybody else. People uh, can make their own fate, make their own destiny. And those ideas were in, in, in real collision in India, the new idea of making your own destiny colliding against the old idea of finding out your destiny from the world and following it. Um, and so from that, that was my first book and my first reporting assignment. And I think from then on, I've just been really interested in that broader, broader notion of democracy. Again, not, not just voting, but, uh, the ideas that define how we live in a society where we, where we choose the future. <laughs> That's a great thing to be obsessed with. Uh, and, and I like your writing style too, your narrative journalism style. Uh, the, the book is so dense, like, uh, you made it a real task for people that want to interview you about it uh, because there are 12,000 stories in the book and uh, lots and lots of deep research and there's a billion angles to come at. But I think what I want to do is connect with you on the thing that I've been obsessed with as well, which is watching everyone around me start to become more and more pessimistic and to the point of thinking that democracy is over and maybe the internet destroyed it, maybe social media destroyed it that totalitarianism authoritarianism is uh here and america is about to get to pass into history and just be something a cautionary tale for the next civilization all built on what seems to be this feeling that uh you can never ever possibly ever change somebody's mind and we're all getting more and more polarized so you start the book in a, in a very unexpected place of two women on a road trip to do something very bizarre, uh, which is basically to destabilize the American political system. Could you talk a little bit about that? I found that to be a wonderful way to get into the topic and to sort of state your thesis. Yeah. In, uh, in I think, 2014, June of 2014, uh, a kind of modern day uh, Thelma and Louise story uh began, except it's a Thelma and Louise story of, uh, about Russian intelligence and American democracy. Uh, these these two women arrived uh, in the United States, and we know that they traveled around the country. We know what states they went to. We know from subsequent indictments, um, you know, the kind of SIM cards and various other you know, paraphernalia they carried around uh, to enable their work and give them an escape plan. But we don't know much about what they actually saw or who they met. But what we do know is that the Russians chose to send these two women on an IRL road trip across multiple states, um, presumably to take in the general scene, but also meet some people and whatever else, um, in order to inform something that everyone listening to this will know about, which is the Russian troll farm operation later on that that essentially pumped a bunch of social media, uh, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook posts into the American bloodstream. Now, again, I trust most people listening to this know about that the end of that story, right? The way in which the Russians were, you know, later found to to kind of be signal jamming our national online conversation. But I think the idea that they sent these two women on this road trip beforehand is felt very significant to me because 
as you know, I mean, it's a it's a big risk, right? It's not it's not that risky to write a bunch of tweets from St. Petersburg. It's quite a risk to send two actual people, actual operatives to another country. Um, it's a physical risk, right? It's a risk of a huge geopolitical confrontation if they're caught. So why would they have taken that risk to write a bunch of tweets? Um, to ask the question another way, out of all the things that the Russian state apparatus could do to the United States, the same way we in the United States can do all kinds of things. We have a whole choice of tools available to the president to mess with any adversary that we would like to mess with, right? You can imagine meetings where young staffers are presenting options. You can take out the power grid in Houston, Mr. Putin. You can, right, you you, you can, you can, um, you know, shut off the water sanitation facility through an online attack in Cleveland, whatever. No, the idea that rises to the fore and becomes the basically marquee intelligence effort of Russia towards American democracy in the mid 2010s was we are going to signal jam the American discourse with a bunch of social media posts. And in the analysis that I offer in that opening chapter, it wasn't just that those posts were like pro-Trump. By the way, they were pro all kinds of things. Those posts, if you look at them, they were pro-Trump, they were pro-Hillary Clinton, they were pro-feminism, they were anti-feminism, they were pro-white supremacy, they were anti-white supremacy. The, the kind of facile notion that they ran an op to elect Donald Trump, although that was one of the goals, if you look at the whole range of tweets, they were a whole bunch of accounts on the left as well, right? And so what were they really trying to do? So I actually tried to do what I do, which is, you know, close read text and actually look at, you know, what is actually being said here. And I downloaded thousands of tweets for two of the most prominent accounts, a left-leaning account and a right-leaning account. I looked at these accounts and it seemed to me what they were trying to do was not just stoke division or get any particular candidate elected. They were trying to encourage in the American people a way of looking at their fellow citizens who disagreed with them, an attitude of contempt and dismissal, I would argue. And I would argue further that contempt and dismissal are fundamentally different from anger and division, right? When I say those words, they may all sound like they're in a kind of word cloud together or kind of words hanging out in the hot tub together, but they're actually quite different. Anger and, and by the way, any marriage therapist or couples there will tell you this is the case. Right? A couple who fights, so it's anger and divided over certain issues, is fine. In fact, it's couples who don't fight, you got to be worried about. Those are the people who are going to explode, right? Those are the people who just one year to the next are divorced and no one saw it coming, right? But contempt and dismissal in couples, and I would argue in countries, is fatal. Because the difference is, if I am mad at you about something you're doing, that is fundamentally different from me saying, David's never going to, he's never going to change. That's just, that's just who he is. That there's no hope for people like him. And in worse, if I say, ah, someone with that skin color, someone from that place, someone with that background, ah, no, no chance. 
no chance. That that right? That is very different from being mad at you. Being mad at you is actually being mad at each other on the scale of a nation is in some ways motivating, right? When 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 women last summer got mad at their abortion rights being stolen, uh, they got involved. They right. got involved to take their country back. I'm I'm not mad at that madness, right? That 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 anger was very generative. That anger is exactly what democracy is all about. I love that anger, right? The view that other people cannot be altered, that there's no set of words, there's no set of ideas, that is really different from being angry. And it is fatal, I think, to the idea of democracy, which is the idea of changing minds in order to change things. And in some ways, the book is an intervention with my own side, the kind of you know, at this point in American life, we can kind of just say the pro-democracy side uh, relative to the anti-democracy side right. to say, guys, if we don't, if we don't reclaim the idea of persuasion, if we don't ditch this kind of pessimistic pose that people can never change, will never change, we're consigning this country to a future of of tyranny and hatred and mass delusion, and that's a future I don't I don't accept. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before and this helped. Now a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time and the question is time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators. 
a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing. Measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. The idea that there could be counterintelligence people, there could be people hired by a government to amplify what you, as you put it, uh, quote, a culture of mutual distrust. Well, uh, an actual conspiracy. What do you know? That's, uh, <laughs> that's really weird and awful and terrifying. I'm wondering from your perspective, like, what do you think inspired this as a way to get at the United States? And what, what's the, the end game here for those who were like, uh, up to all of this? Well, think about, you know, to not to get too like grandiose about it, but if you think about the broad, broad sweep of history in every kind of society that's ever existed, every village, every region, every nation state, there are group decisions, right? Um, 
in the modern world, these are very complicated. There's millions of them. But even in the ancient world, you know, do we let those new people into the village or do we not let them into the village? Do we, that guy stole something. Do we yell at him or do we hang him? Uh, you know, do we, we're mostly vegetarians in this community. Do we allow people to eat meat or is there just no meat entering the premises of this community, right? These are the kinds of decisions that human societies, communities have had to make forever. The question is, how do you make them, right? And for most of history, in much of the world, it was felt that the best way for those kinds of decisions to be made was to have one guy make them, <laughs> right? And it literally was almost always one guy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it wasn't just that these one guys had an iron fist and stamped out participation that was otherwise kind of roiling and seething. It was widely accepted that these kinds of group decisions were too hard for groups to actually make. There's no mechanism for it. It hadn't really been invented. I mean, that would, you know, these, it's too complicated. One guy will decide for us. And there were different stories about why that guy. Divine right of kings, hereditary, whatever, that the fact that they're serving the people. I mean, there's all, all kinds of stories, right? But broadly speaking, most of the human story, most of our ancestors were governed by one guy or some patchwork of one guys in a handful of places. And in the last few hundred years, this new system came about called democracy. And, and it's worth just, I think, reframing that a little bit because it's worth remembering that democracy is, is a blip in the human experience. It is not normal. It is not inevitable. It is not automatic. I don't think it necessarily is a very good reflection of who we naturally are um, any more than your fanciest suit is a reflection of who we, it is a learned behavior based on a radical proposition that the best way to make group decisions about the future is for all of us 24 7 365 to argue about everything mm -hmm. constantly <laughs> and then from this absolute nonviolent melee that is going on make these decisions about the future in other words everybody should weigh in on what should be eaten and not eaten in the community everybody should weigh in on who gets into the village and who doesn't get into the village everybody should weigh in on whether we drain the lake in the winter or don't drain the lake in the winter and i pause to just like unspool that because i think we forget how utterly insane a project democracy is. I love is. this. I love you say this. Just just to pause you for half a second. I love this framing of it, like something like the scientific method. You know, we had it's a tool, it's a thinking tool. We had to invent it, and it's uh, it's a way to take things we're capable of doing and put them in a framework where they actually happen versus just sort of you know hoping for the best. And I like this framing a lot. And it requires lots of arguing. And a acceptance that, yeah, you can change people's minds. It's not, there's all sorts of different ways and it's very complex, but I just love this framing. That's the whole, that's the whole premise, right? If we're moving to this system as we have, the whole thing is based, whether you realize it or not, on the notion that if you want to change things, you have to change some people's minds. Yeah. 
That's the whole thing. And if you can't do that, if you believe it's not possible, if you don't know how to do it, others don't know how to do it, everyone starts to believe that people just are who they are, you are inviting the king to come back. That's my core point here. Yeah. Right? The king is always lurking. Donald Trump wants to be an American king, but he's not the only one. Right? Right. The king is lurking around the world. Right? The king wants to come back in Brazil and narrowly was put away. There are kings trying to creep back in in Europe. The Philippines had one of these aspiring wannabe kings. Why is this happening? Well, we are not proving that democracy is workable. We're not, when we give up on changing minds, when, when our democracies refuse, decline to make people's lives materially better again and again and again to help people through the times we live in, we are asking for the king to come back. And so this notion, this kind of pose that I often perceive around me of, ugh, those Trump voters will never change. It's not worth your time. It's not worth your breath. Those anti-vaxxers will never. Well, what is your theory of how you get the world you want then? What is your understanding of what happened with gay rights going from support in the teens to 70, 80% support? Near consensus, I would say. Republicans recently helping to enshrine gay marriage in the law. Mm-hmm. What is your theory of how that happened? Right? This this notion that 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 persuasion isn't possible or isn't worth our effort is just on its face empirically false. But it's also just an incredibly demoralizing idea. And I refuse to accept that we can have a right-wing anti-democratic movement that wants to smash our freedoms and 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 advocate political violence as a way of solving problems and overturn elections, that that movement in some weird paradoxical way believes more in persuasion and the ability of that movement to pull people in than the actual pro-democracy movement does. That doesn't feel like it can stand to me. And this book is is an intervention to try to turn that around. It's great. Let's, uh, zoom out, let's take a a rocket up into space and then look down at the whole system and identifying that the, the easiest or the, the, a, at least this tactic that is working pretty well right now to destabilize democracy is just convince everybody that you can't change each other's minds that as a tactic and is, it's really great to, to point that out because there's so many people who, like-minded people, progressive people. Uh, there's so many people who feel like they're on the, you know, the the left who feel like they are trying to make a better world, trying to take poison out of the system, trying to prevent harm, who have taken on that attitude, which is the attitude that actually causes the most harm. The That I, there's no way I would ever be able to convince a MAGA hat person of anything ever, ever, ever. And that's like, that was the point of the entire counter Intel pro campaign that the uh, Russians put forth and everywhere else has been applied. Like you just pointed out, you can see the effects of like the sort of insurrection type things that are happening in all these different countries and the rise of these uh, figures who are like, Oh great. Democracy got destabilized. And all we had to do was convince people you couldn't uh, argue to any uh there's no goal in arguing with anybody. There's no point in it that nobody's mind can ever be changed. 
That's such a great thesis statement to then fight against. It's no, no, I just appreciate the way you pulled that off. It was, you and you did pull it off really well. well thank you. And I and, and and I think also there's also a context that of what is happening in the country that makes the thesis even more important, which is that I think my friends and allies on the political left to whom this intervention is directed uh, sometimes fall into a trap of overhyping the Trumpist and, and, and more broadly kind of right-wing movement arrayed against them and underhyping the progress they have achieved that has caused this backlash. Okay. I think if you actually step back again and understand what's going on, there has been a tremendous amount of social progress over the last generation or two. A lot of it through incredible work of organizing activism and persuasion. That progress toward a real multiracial democracy with liberty and justice for all, no exceptions, has inspired among a minority of Americans, a desire to stop the onrushing of the future, to stop progress, right? And the Republican Party has essentially perceived that opportunity and decided to go all in on being the force that stops that kind of progress, that trajectory of progress, and that caters to people who would rather break the country than share it. Now, once you remember that, you say, okay, we have this challenge of resistance of this very powerful set of people who is trying to do this stuff. But our posture cannot only be resistance to it. These, this movement is dependent on, it's, it's, it's parasitic on levels of confusion and stress and anxiety and um a kind of um a kind of sense of loss a feeling that i often think about as a feeling of being mocked by the future mm. um feelings that are roiling in our body politic and i'm not in the business of judging those feelings i'm just telling you they're happening they're happening for a mix of good reasons and bad reasons these feelings are happening because China came to your town and took away all the manufacturing jobs. And you and I might be very sympathetic to the fact that if you are a fifth generation table maker in North Carolina and your daddy and your granddaddy and your grand granddaddy made tables in North Carolina, and then we decided to do permanent normal trade relations with China and you become the first man in your town in North Carolina on your line of family to not make tables. And in fact, you find it hard to find any job to make anything. And your wife now makes more than you. You told you got to go back to school, but you can't really figure out those programs. By the way, it's quite expensive to go back to school. You can't figure it out. You're having feelings. Okay. I don't treat it as inevitable that those feelings lead you to the right. To me at first, you're just having feelings. And by the way, there may be less benign versions of those kind of feelings. You may be a middle manager, middle class, white guy who suddenly wonders, why am I going to all these trainings about race? 
Why are they telling me I'm privileged? Right? That doesn't immediately take people to a 10 of I'm against critical race theory as a communist plot. Remember, people are just having feelings. People are living through an era of progress, of change, of, of negative uh, developments like the rise of China on their towns or climate change, ways of having to be as a man or as a white person different from before, watching demographic change happening, watching a kind of real multiracial democracy start to be born. And people have big feelings about it, right? What we, what we children, we call, we call big feelings, right? People, a lot of them, we, we are an electorate full of big feelings. And I think what the right understands that the left does not is that these big feelings are not themselves a politics, but they are the raw material for the political entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And the right is not just trying to sell you some tax policy. The right starts with the big feelings. The right starts with understanding that it's got to be really hard to be knocked by China off of the script that your daddy and your granddaddy and your grand-granddaddy gave you. That's just hard. Doesn't mean that it was the wrong trade policy. Doesn't mean anything. It just, it's got to be hard. The right understands that a kid coming home and saying, mommy, daddy, are the founding fathers bad people? The right understands that that creates feelings in a parent, right? Doesn't sure. the feelings don't necessarily go one way or the other? It just creates feelings. And what the right is so good at doing is backing its agenda into those big feelings and it, and, and building an entire politics that starts with you having those big feelings. And then they have a full funnel from Fox News to the whole rest of their industrial apparatus to take you, funnel you, convey you from the first flare-up of those big feelings, what I would call pre-political big feelings, and they have a full, elaborate system to carry you from the first instance of those big feelings through a radicalization process to make you think there's an alien invasion on the southern border, Marxists are trying to make you hate America, so on and so forth. And what I long for is for the pro-democracy movement to say, oh, we can't just walk into that environment, that roiling electorate full of big feelings in this moment in time in which there really has been so much discombobulating change. We can't walk into that electorate and be like, hey, would you like Medicare for all? Medicare for all is a policy that I'm pretty confident 80% of Americans could not explain to you, right? Like, we can't go in there talking about block grants. We shouldn't be going in there talking about policy at all. We are in a moment of real precipitous change in, in the basic self-conception that people have in this country related to the larger whole that they're part of. And basically, we have a pro-democracy movement that speaks in a language of policy, speaks in a kind of language of platitudes, but does not get in there and say, yeah, you aren't correctly noticing that there's more Spanish-speaking cashiers at your Walgreens. Here's why. 
Because I'll tell you what, the right is fully explaining to you, if you're, if you're curious, why there's more Spanish-speaking cashiers at your counter at Walgreens today than last year. But those big feelings don't go away just because you choose not to explain them to people. Or people having them, their kids ask those questions about his American history, you know, are we, are we a bad country or were we founded in terrible ideals by terrible people? But your kids are going to come home and ask that whether you like it or not. The right is fully all up in people's grill explaining to them why that's happening. Are we doing that? Are we countering that? Right? So there is, a, the, the word I use in the book repeatedly is meaning making. There is a vast process of meaning making that it takes to carry people from the kind of stimuli of moving through a society in the midst of precipitous change all the way up to having a politics. And the anti-democracy side gets this and the pro-democracy side doesn't. And it was my hope to try to change that. You open up by walking in spaces, does meeting people who are in, uh, who activists who are catching on, they're, they're being uh, converted into the idea that, wait, persuasion can and will work. You spend time with feminists and uh, people in working in Black Lives Matter and things like that, and the people who've had many years experience, people who just got in, involved. Uh, one quote that uh, stuck out to me as you were just talking was uh, Alicia Garza, who you spent a lot of time with in the book, talking about how the right deeply understands people. It gives them uh, a reason for being and gives them answers to the question of why am I suffering? On the, the left, there's a lot of, uh, I think that, I want to hear your thoughts on this. There's this sense of, I don't want to get involved in those dark arts. I want to give people facts and figures and science and logic. And, uh, you know, if I employ these emotional appeals or I walk backwards through their pre-political feelings, that is a, a, a form of manipulation that we don't do over here because they, when they go low, we go high, that sort of thing. It's sort of a, a thing that spins off of the, you can't change people's minds is also this, you ought not try because that's naughty, that's bad, that's evil. And uh, I wonder what your thoughts are on that sort of thing that you talk about in the book of people who kind of come around to seeing it differently. But it is a thing that I, I know when I talk about these topics, that comes up a lot, especially if I mention something like inoculation theory or deep canvassing. One of the very first questions that will come from any audience that hears about that is, couldn't bad people use this? Or isn't this a bad thing to do to, to people? Shouldn't we just be giving people facts and figures? It seems wrong to use persuasion. As if the word persuasion itself suggests you are tricking people into coming over to your side. What, what do you think about that? I, I think I would like print your question and put it on a billboard. Like, I think you have hit on to me, the core, core issue holding back the pro-democracy movement from winning the age and the core behavior and belief that is doing that. Right. To, so to me, it's like to, to riff on the Michelle Obama line that you quoted, it's like, when, when they go amygdala, we go cerebral cortex, right? <laughs> yeah. um, when they when they go lizard brain, like we, we go Albert Einstein. Um, I think you've hit on something really, really important, which is that this is not just a problem of ability. It's a problem of willingness. There is at some very deep level, sometimes spoken, sometimes unspoken. I think some of what you said 
some people would say, yeah, I do feel that way. And I think a lot of others would, would kind of be like, no, I, you know, it's more of a instinctive aversion, right? But that doesn't matter. In both cases, they do exactly what you said, which is there is this tendency on the left to believe a couple things. As you said, things are self-evident. Policies are self-evident. Facts are self. 1.5 Celsius. Why is anybody talking about 1.5 Celsius? Have you ever met a regular person? <laughs> do you understand how small that feels to people who don't know a lot about this issue? Mm -hmm. You know what people do know about? Their children choking out one day. So tell them about that. Right? Um, there's this notion of another part of what you said is so important is this notion that that persuasion in the way that I'm talking about it, it the the less reasoning aspect of it the more emotional appeals playing to sentiment play having story that there's something inherently as you say dark arty about it that it's actually wrong to play on that level you can do it but it's wrong I had a really fascinating conversation about this with Professor Noam Chomsky when he was kind enough to do a, a book launch event for me on Zoom, and we had this conversation publicly. And he read the book, and he kind of is sympathetic to the argument, the people I'm writing about. But he said, look, I, I kind of had a problem with your book. He said, for me, when I hear the word persuasion, I think about like the PR industry. I think about Coca-Cola trying to make you drink something that's going to slowly kill you. And I just think playing to emotion, playing to story, making people feel things is a way to get them to do things. He's, he said, you know, for me, it just comes out of that tradition and category. And so when you're talking about should Bernie Sanders tell his life story more, which is one of the things I write about in the book, Chomsky said to me, my instinctual reaction is like, no, like he should do exactly what he's doing, like just talk about the issues, whatever. But he's like, but I also understand practically that there's a whole, it's obviously true. There's a whole bunch of voters who are not currently customers for Bernie Sanders' policy agenda, but might be customers for a more human rendering of him that was like basically never offered to the American electorate. I get that at an instinctual level, but it's, but it's hard for me because I have so much training, Chomsky was saying, to be suspicious of any kind of appeals that are not appeals to reason. And I, you know, I don't think everybody's getting this from where Chomsky's getting this because he's a theorist who thinks about and is an expert and all that kind of propagandistic stuff. But I think actually the aversion that he expressed is very deep and widespread in a lot of the left, which is a feeling that some of the more, it, it's kind of a desire to live in a world th that is like Plato Aristotle world in which people are like self-governing citizens are like reading things and engaging in arguments with each other in the evening to, you know, in order to like form their political consciousness. Whereas in fact, you know, a lot of political opinion formation is a chiefly emotional process, or at least preponderantly emotional process for a certain part of it. If you think about, you know, that, that famous line, people say anger is what pain looks like in public. You know, I think political anger is what pain looks like in public and confusion looks like in public and anxiety looks like in public, right? When I see, and I'm not saying this to exonerate anybody, 
But when I look at the Trumpist movement, which is over an overwhelmingly white and and kind of male dominated movement that is really particularly oriented around white male loss, white loss in general, male loss in general, and white male loss. And when I say loss, I'm talking about the losses one experiences in transitioning to an egalitarian world, the loss of undeserved privilege, the loss of, you know, having to actually share. Um, I see outwardly a movement of angry, rageful people pushing angry, rageful policies. But as a writer who actually just studies people and understands some of the emotion and psychology behind these things, that's not all I see. I see a lot of hurt and lost little boys at the heart of that movement. And I'm not saying don't do not, I'm not saying to excuse anybody. I don't see a bunch of big, you know, tough guys in this movement. I see a posture of big, tough guyness masking a lot of men who are really fucking confused and scared. And what I think is going on with those men, my assessment, is that they do not know who they are going to be on the other side of the mountain. They have been told, they have found out that change is coming. They have lived through some of those changes. Those changes are happening in their neighborhoods, in their workplaces, in their marriages. They know what the changes are. They don't know who they will be on the far side of change. They have seen the old way of being a man, haven't seen the new one install itself yet. They they were socialized in their whiteness and Americanness in a certain way. They know it stands accused of being problematic. They don't know quite how to be white on the far side of that change. A lot of white Americans do. They don't. A lot of men have absolutely successfully shifted themselves and shifted away from the socialization of the past and started behaving differently, but some, but many have not. And that kind of view, I think, of what is going on in this country is very important for the pro-democracy movement because it, it says you are the, the actual meta context in which you are operating is not merely one in which we need to like build back better or do climate or this and that. Like we are dealing with a country in which a whole bunch of people do not know who they will be on the far side of change. They feel mocked by the future. They can be right about this. They can be wrong about this. It can be based on bullshit information. It can be based on true facts, like what China actually did to their town. It can be based on a combination of true facts and disinformation. It does not matter, David. In politics, feelings very quickly become facts. And the reality is when you have tens of millions of your fellow citizens who basically feel a very visceral sense of, I don't know who I am going to be in the future and how I fit into this whole thing, you are in for a roller coaster ride and potentially worse if you are not as a pro democracy, pro freedom, pro-equality movement, speaking to them, connecting with them as powerfully as the people who would pander to them and offer them visions of, of, you know, nostalgia and clinging to the past. 
all throughout the book, you spend time with uh, different groups who are trying different ways of of this approach, this these different persuasion approaches. And there's another thing that that people often ask me that I wanted to like hear your thoughts on, which is if you can get people over the line of saying yes, people's minds can change, and here here are the methods that are uh, that seem to work wherever you pull them from, they all have very similar tenets. It starts with Socratic stuff and we go out from there depending on which academic silo you're you're playing with or which activist group has A-B tested something to the point of success. You spend time with race trainers and I was, first of all, I was totally unaware that such a thing existed and it blew my mind that there were people who did this sort of work and we can talk about that. But there's one of the people you talk to in a group of race trainers, uh, Kurt, uh, had this point related to what you just said, he had worked in sales and he helped dentists who were being bought out by a large conglomerate uh, deal with the idea of, I'm going to take my little small business that I've owned by myself or with my family for a while and hand over a lot of what it does to a, a company and kind of work for that company. And he, he realized that to make that work, he had to think of what he was taking a person through a cl- uh, that he was that the person that he was helping through this process and attempting to persuade them to go through this process was to think of it as grieving, to think of it as uh, they need to mourn the loss of something. And that's something that they're losing is a sense of identity. That they're having to switch over to another sense of identity. And he said that he saw that very plainly as also what's happening when you're trying to create some sort of uh, messaging or some sort of conversational dynamic with one of these people who would fall into the MAGA world. Uh, a a person of a, a certain uh, demographic, a white male who has is feeling a mourning and a grieving for oh my identity doesn't get to be the, the thing that is what it is now. It has to change this other thing, and I'm not sure what to do about the loss part of it. And all of that stuff is probably inartic- is probably not articulated at, at all, and it's probably just being felt. And then you know you could back into that with your politics, but. Here's the thing. Here's the here. This is believe it or not. This is going to be a question. The question is this: When it gets to stuff like this, oftentimes when I'm presenting these these ideas to people, this is where I get uh, the next level of pushback, which is why should I offer any anything nice or empathetic or help guide a person through that process if that's the kind of person that really truly hates me, wants bad things to happen to people of my uh, race, people of my culture, like why should I put so much effort into something when this person wasn't going to put any effort at all into it? And that I, I have, I've seen this pushback many times of like, are you suggesting that I'm supposed to be the person who offers a hand to someone who was, had a, has a knife in that hand? What are you talking about? You know what I'm saying? Like, this seems like a, yep. another level. This of is a, this is a, I, 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 so I want to say a couple, I, I tried to wade into this debate in the book, but also have a very different take on it with a couple clear caveats. First of all, and many of the people I read about in the book say this very clearly, no one has to do any work they don't want to do. Okay. Mm-hmm. It is my sincere view that some of us are going to have to engage in conversation and persuasive efforts that we shouldn't have to if we want the country to get where it needs to go. But no one has to do it. This is all voluntary. And everyone I'm writing about wants to do it, wants to have the conversations they're having, right? We don't need everybody to do everything. Very important. 
Second of all, I think we sometimes confuse on the left the rightness of a trajectory with it being easy to go down that trajectory. Okay? Just because a change is right or righteous does not make it easy to go through. Right? Depending on your views, I'm not saying it's right or wrong to trade with China, but we made a big decision to trade with China in the early 2000s. It changed the landscape of every county in this country drastically. I think much more than anybody would have predicted. Right? Whether if you're an economist who thinks, yes, it was the right choice, trade increases both societies, that's fine. You can, you have the data to support your view that trading with China is the right decision. But if that blinds you to the ways in which it is going to be a rough, rough ride for a whole bunch of people who are basically going to need to have new conceptions of themselves simply to live in the wake of your new trade policy where like nothing is made in this country anymore. If you, if you confuse the rightness of it from the ease of the transition, you are delusional. And I think similarly, and this is where it comes to the more fraught area, on this race and gender progress that we are living through, I think we have to be able to separate, hold two thoughts in our head at the same time. Number one, this progress towards a racially egalitarian society, a true flourishing multiracial democracy is the only way. It is the right answer. It is correct. It is not going in that direction is morally indefensible. Period. Full stop. However, we need to also be able to hold in our head the thought, this is going to be hard for some people. This is going to be hard for some people to get there. It would necessarily be hard. If we are serious about this progress, it would have to be hard. We have socialized until very recently Every white person, pretty much, to conflate their racial identity with Americanness itself. We have until very recently meant American when we said white and meant white when we meant American. The idea that suddenly not doing that is not going to be hard for people is foolishness. It doesn't mean that we're not, it doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. But if you don't think that's going to be hard for people, you're not paying attention. Similarly, not just in America, but everywhere around the world, we've changed more on gender relations in the last 50 or 60 years than in all of recorded human history. I remember an art historian telling me there's almost no paintings of men holding their children until like the 20th century. Think about that. Like anywhere. This is not a... America problem. Think about art music. Like, did you, did you see pictures of like dads feeding their kids in ancient China or ancient Egypt? We, this is a, every society throughout history got this wrong. Every society, I'm a father. It's one of the best, richest parts of my life. The idea that basically all men before our generation, pretty much 90 something percent of men who've ever lived, 99% of men who've ever lived, basically 
yes, they had privilege. Yes, they, you know, they had the privilege of not having to make food, if you want to call it that. I think making food is really fun. They had the privilege of not having to be fathers, but you know what? It's one of the most glorious things you'll ever do. They had power, but they were deprived of a huge bunch of ways of being human. And women were deprived of a whole bunch of other ways of being human while having less power. And then suddenly, blissfully, in the last 50 to 60 years, we decided to abolish that. And not just in a handful of Western countries, all around the world, right? Different speeds in different places, but it's happening everywhere, slowly but surely, right? We live in a generation, our generation, maybe our parents' generation, women are playing roles, normal for women to play roles that their mothers, grandmothers, great never played, ever, in terms of work, in terms of travel, in terms of the ability to have opinions and say them. Remarkable. More in the last 50 years than in, you know, recorded history. And the idea that that's not going to be tough for some people. By the way, it's tough for women too. It's not just tough for men. Right? We've, we've given women all this freedom without updating any of our social policy. So great, yes, women can now travel around the world, but there's no childcare. And then the idea that we socialize all these men throughout history to associate being okay, being safe, being whole, with a certain kind of dominance, with having certain kinds of things done for them, with not having to share certain things, with you know having to behave certain ways in meetings where you don't listen to other people, whatever. The idea that we kind of prescribe that late in the game, which again, I believe we should. I want to live in that new world as fast as possible. But the idea that that's not going to be hard for people, that there's not going to be transitional shock, anxiety, fear, self-loathing, masquerading as public anger and and a kind of um, movement of rage and resentment is crazy. So I think this is, uh, you know, as you can hear from my voice, I, I think this is the great blind spot of the political left right now. The things we want to achieve, that we ought to be fighting for, that we are fighting for, the progress we have been realizing and will continue to realize and must continue to seek is progress that is inherently, necessarily destabilizing, anxiety-inducing, terror-inducing to millions of people. And that does not mean we shouldn't be doing it but it means that if we want the progress to go on, we need a strategy and a plan for that transitional anxiety, for tens of millions of men feeling like, ah, who am I going to be? For white people feeling like, why are they suddenly talking about my race? If we don't have a plan for those big feelings, the fascists will because they already do. So happy that you've got a chapter about deep canvassing. I spent more time with them than anybody else over the course of my project. I went out there and did three canvases with them, visited like seven times and the whole thing, the met Steve and the whole thing. And even now when I go back to um, that side of the country, I make sure I pop in and, and have either have lunch or, or something with uh, 
Dave Fleischer. So those are all people that are very uh, important and again, I'm connected to them and I, I've attempted to maintain journalistic integrity and an objective uh, <laughs> viewpoint, but I can't help the fact that I, I find them all fascinating and interesting people and I like hanging out with them. And that was one of the things that Dave told me early on was that the the other side that he was working against, the persuasion tactics that he considered what they were generating as a uh, counterbalance against was it was very easy to make messages around fear. And he, he outlined all the different ways that it had been done in the past and it was being done currently whenever I was hanging out with them and they were, were working on transgender bathroom uh, stuff. So yes, everything you say, uh, that is just it. Once you get deep into this world of people who are actually using things that actually work, whether it's inoculation theory, which you talk about in the book, uh, I love the time you spent with uh, Anad Shinkarosario, the, the stand-up comedian techniques, which were all incredible problem sandwiches and uh, uh, persuading the middle, uh, thinking in terms of like a stand-up comedian who knows how to cultivate surprise and to um, to know, uh, look, I might think it's funny, but if the audience isn't laughing, then it's you know it doesn't matter what I think. All that stuff is so brilliant and fantastic. And then you do go into the deep canvassing world. I loved seeing through your eyes how far it's come at this point where when I hung out with them, it was relatively early. It was a couple of years in, but the the canvas that you went to in Arizona, I'm, I'm reading from uh, the notes I took from your book, 30 weeks, 50, almost 50,000 homes, almost 71,000 people. Uh, 97% of the people who answered the first question in the canvas went ahead and went through the whole conversation. Those are bonkers numbers. And that's just for one canvas. They're everywhere now. They're targeting all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And um, I am astonished how quickly it spread. And it addresses exactly what you're talking about from, from in all sorts of different ways. Mainly the fact that the if we were talking about the, the people who are, have this fear that is generated by change and the sense that maybe my identity is... is uh, is being threatened both as an individual and the groups to which I align. There's what I love about deep canvassing is there's no need to say that out loud or point that out, allow the person to evoke that and sort of, uh, get the, the soupy floaty. I don't really know how I feel about this exactly, but I have a lot of feelings thing, help them through that. I just have a just open-ended question, which is just tell me a little bit about your time with deep canvassing and what did you take away from it? You know, it's, um, I love that you also have that experience at the early phase of it. And you're right. I, I saw it in its kind of maturity and I was amazed by, you know, where it's come from, from the moment you described. Um, you know, I think there's so many different people that I write about in the persuaders who are refusing the great write-off that you and I began this conversation talking about. I mean, I think, I think the write-off is still in some ways the dominant orientation in a lot of spaces on the left, but there are dissenters. And this is, the persuaders is about the dissenters, right? And deep canvassing is perhaps for me of all the different corners of dissent to the great write-off that I witnessed. Deep canvassing is perhaps the most inspiring and the most practical and the most just, happening here and now. Um, I think the biggest thing I took away from watching people go door to door, knock on the door, ask if they could talk about an issue, eliciting stories, sharing stories, is the, the at the core of it is a view of other human beings that is actually, I think, 
a profound lesson that spans across the book and beyond the book. And that view of other people is that they are complicated. If I had to distill what the deep canvassers, and I think a lot of the other persuaders I write about believe, that maybe most people listening to this don't believe or are not sure about, it is that other people, including people on the other shore from you politically, are complicated. I think what happens in an age of polarization is that we think people on the far side of us politically are monoliths. We think that the outward story, the outward stance is the whole story, the whole stance, right? We, if I like you, I'm going to grant you the dignity of complexity, right? Because I'm going to see in you what I see in myself. I know I'm complicated, right? I know I'm full of roiling sentiments. I know that I may have a stance on immigration, but be uncomfortable with a certain group at the same time that conflicts with my stance on immigration, or I may be an avowed um, anti-vaxxer, but get the vaccine for my daughter because she has a lung condition. I'm not tell anybody. Um, a lot of people are complicated. A lot of people are devout social conservatives, but they're just for gay rights and only gay rights because of their nephew. You know, a whole country changed because of that emotion. And so what the deep canvassers know that I think most of us have forgotten or choose not to know or never knew in the first place is that people are live battlefields of conflicting sentiments. And once you view people that way, which by the way is empirically validated, it's not just a, it's not just a Pollyanna conviction, it's true in fact. Once you view people that way, it is a rebirth of political possibility. The world opens up to you once you believe that. Because once you believe that, the whole game changes. Your goal is not to resist your fellow citizens on the other side from you. You resist powerful actors. You resist Rupert Murdoch and Donald Trump. But many of your fellow citizens who are voting presently to limit a future of multiracial democracy or the rights of you know, non-binary people or whatever, are people who have not yet been organized into a way of looking at the world that was not inevitable for you either. They are subject to forces and counterforces and counter-counterforces within them that could go in different ways. Someone who, you know, hates trans people or doesn't know a lot about trans people, but has an aversion to this whole pronouns thing or whatever. But, and this is a, you know, the, the, this is real. That sounds like a joke, you know, but also identifies as a sports fan of underdogs. You know, it's been a lifelong supporter of the Mets or pick your team, right? There are these people who just, they will support a losing team. Their whole, they, they, in, in their mind, in their self-image, they're underdog champions. And they hate trans people. And these things sit on totally different shelves of their brain. And what the deep canvassers do and what they know is that there could be some electricity between those two things. 
that those two things are actually in tension with each other, but they're not an active tension for that person right now. Right now, sitting by themselves watching Fox News on their couch, their identity as an underdog champion and their identity as a trans hater are not in active conflict. They're not colliding with each other, but they could. And the canvasser knocks on the door and tries to just take this one example to see if your love of underdogs, if that one person you know from that group, if your sense of yourself as a godly person who, you know, is kind, whatever, if that can be brought into generative conflict with that hatred of trans people. And what they have found, and scientists have studied it and validated it, is that more often than you'd think, not always, I don't even know if it's most of the time, but more often than you'd think, it works. More often than you'd think, there is something lurking in people besides the toxic outward stance that can be puffed up and inflated and pitted against that stance and occasionally can displace it. And that's an incredibly powerful idea. And I think it's not an idea that has to stay confined to the domain of deep canvassing. In some ways, it's an idea, it's an orientation that we all can adopt. I think we can all become persuaders if we remember that a lot of what we are confronting right now is a country full of confusion, full of anxiety, full of that sense of being mocked by the future that people have on the road to a better society. And it is possible, far more possible than we realize, to organize large chunks of that citizenry into the new reality with patience and love and strategy and righteous anger um, and with an abiding and evidence-based faith in the possibility of persuasion. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, including Anand Gerardis' book, The Persuaders, head to youarenotsosmart.com or look in the show notes inside your podcast player. You'll also find a link to the homepage for How Minds Change, which is the book that I wrote about these topics. And you'll find links to all the episodes before this episode in this series, for which this episode is the conclusion. You'll also find a link to my new newsletter, disambiguation and you'll find all sorts of other stuff you know you can get the past episodes in other places stitcher soundcloud apple podcasts amazon music audible google Podcasts, spotify but if you don't want to do all that we just want to find links to those places go to you are not so smart.com follow me on twitter at david mccraney follow the show at not smart blog also on facebook slash you are not so smart and if you'd like to support this operation help make it better help pay for transcription and other features, go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Pitching in at any amount will get you the show ad-free, but the higher amounts get you posters, t-shirts, signed books, and other things. I just sent out a big slew of these things to the people that needed to get them most. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. 
Tell everyone you know about the show. Check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. And right after I upload this, I'm headed to Rotterdam to talk about how minds change at the Night of Philosophy conference. I hope to see you there. If I don't, I'll put links to all that somewhere soon as well. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.